God damn you. It is a little strange that we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity. Working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. Campus is a loaded minefield. There are girls everywhere. And it's guaranteed that I will pass some attractive girls as I walk in between classes. If it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season, and she endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. It would be hard for me to see how a woman could be a drill sergeant, right face, left face, keep your mouth shut, private, over, over men without violating their sense of manhood and her sense of womanhood. Go home. They want power, not equality. This is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church. We are meaning makers and storytellers. And the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that shape our lives. We need each other badly or goodly. We need each other. And we keep forgetting again and again and again that we are loved. And we say, no, I'm no good. No, I messed it all up. No, I feel so guilty. No, I feel so ashamed. We need each other. In the midst of this difficult, dark, and often violent world, we need to have a community of support to which we can call all people and be a community of hope. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Opening. This is kind of a big episode. It's episode 10. And I did a little bit of research and found that only 56.1% of podcasts have 10 episodes or fewer. So we have broken into, if my math is right, the, uh, the top 43.9% so of, of episodes. That doesn't necessarily mean uh, listeners, but it does mean number of episodes. So I am committed to continuing this. Uh, it's something that I want to do. It's just because it's something that's fun to do. So I've been having a lot of fun with it and plan to continue past these first 10 episodes. So uh, one bit of news that's going to be coming up here. I've got another song out that's going to be available. It's scheduled for April 27th. And, uh, you know, sometimes the the systems that release the music may take a little bit longer, but I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be out April 27th. It's a song called Go Be Free. And I wrote it uh, in response to the book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr. And I thought that was a really great book for introducing complementarians who want to follow what the Bible teaches about the roles of men and women, but who are open to listening to something beyond a lot of their complementarian assumptions. And Beth 
Beth Alsenbar is a professor, and she talks about in that book about how she ends all of her classes by telling the students to go be free. And I thought that was such a great ending to uh, a class that, that she does that for her students. And, and so that uh, inspired a song that I wrote called Go Be Free. And I, if you didn't know, I produce music under the artist name Provoke Wonder. And I have some songs out there. You can find them wherever you get your music, wherever you stream your music. Look for the artist Provoke Wonder. And I've got an album out and I've got some other singles out. And this will be another single that that comes out uh, in a couple weeks and then it will be part of an EP that will be coming out uh, a little bit later this year. So today we have an article that we are going to read through and discuss and this has been quite the article for uh, as far as garnering response from people. It was the number one most read analysis piece for Baptist News Global in 2020. And then in 2021, it still was the number three most read piece. And it has gotten, it's gotten me a lot of very angry feedback from a lot of John MacArthur supporters. Uh, This is the one where a lot of people really first began attacking me for being a stay-at-home dad. They were, you know, saying, who, who are you as a stay-at-home dad to be, you know, critiquing a faithful pastor like John MacArthur? And some of them got downright mean, telling me to, to go make them a sandwich and different things like that. So it's been interesting to see the response to this one. So we're going to go ahead and read this, and then we're going to be discussing it. How John MacArthur loves the Bible, but not his neighbor. As he walked across the stage July 26th to the large wooden pulpit, the auditorium that seats 3,500 people was filled with non-masked, non-socially distanced conservative evangelicals, with another 1,000 people gathered outside who all jumped to their feet for a standing ovation. The man who many evangelicals believe to be the greatest expositor of scripture alive acknowledged the roar of the crowd and then got right down to business reading a passage from Psalm 19 and praying before the church joined together in a rousing rendition of Come Christians Join to Sing. A few days earlier, John MacArthur and the Grace Church elders released a statement saying they were going to disobey their government's temporary ban on churches gathering together. As might be expected from Grace Church, the statement was filled with Bible verses to prove every point. The statement used the word authority 31 times, right 13 times, and some form of head, subject, command, rule, at least another 70 times. They see the world through the lens of authority and power. And according to their theology, the ones who have the power are determined by a nuanced set of arrangements that ultimately boils down to the men who are elders over their church. In addition to proving that the men in their church are in charge, they also tapped into popular conspiracy theories about politicians manipulating statistics, the media covering up or camouflaging inconvenient truths, the projections of scientists being wrong, the coronavirus disease not really being that bad, and, of course, the government persecuting Christians. 
Not one single word of lament for the lives affected by this disease in their community. As of July 27th, there have been 173,995 confirmed cases of COVID-19 with 4,360 deaths in Los Angeles alone. These numbers are on the rise and account for half the deaths in the state. And based on the numbers of people sitting shoulder to shoulder with virtually no masks in their service July 26th, the people of Grace Church don't seem that concerned. In fact, they're not simply oblivious to what they are doing, they're actually proud of it. John MacArthur's henchman, Phil Johnson, took to Twitter boasting about John MacArthur preaching to a full worship center, posting multiple photographs of all the unmasked people sitting shoulder to shoulder. He even went so far as to argue with people who questioned how full the auditorium was by showing them even more photos of how full it was. And the responses flowed from supportive conservative evangelicals all around the country expressing gratitude through tears for their boldness. Where is this basic lack of humanity coming from? Earlier on Sunday, I sat down to read an article by the Eastern Orthodox theologian David Bentley Hart as he responded to yet another uninformed review of his Christian Universalist book, That All Shall Be Saved. In this article, Hart says, the irresoluble contradiction at the very core of the now-dominant understanding of Christian confession is that the faith commands us to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, while also enjoining us to believe in the reality of an eternal hell. We cannot possibly do both of these things at once. I say this not just because I think it emotionally impossible fully to love a God capable of consigning any creature to everlasting punishment, though in fact I do think this. I say it rather because absolute love of neighbor and a perfectly convinced belief in hell are antithetical to one another in principle." Unquote. In other words, the love of self, neighbor, and God will ultimately get cut off at some point by a theology of eternal conscious torment. Once one is willing to accept the idea that their neighbor will get set on fire forever by God and label that torture as good, they are no longer concerned for the good of their neighbor. Of course, not all conservative evangelicals are as heartless as John MacArthur and the Grace Church elders. Other influential ministries, such as Mark Dever's Nine Marks, have respectfully called MacArthur out on Grace's decision to gather. But ultimately, while there will be some varieties of convictions amongst among conservative evangelicals, the reality is that their shared belief in eternal conscious torment will serve only to produce varying shades of lost humanity. Hart explains, Really, all our language of Christian love is rendered vacuous to the precise degree that we truly believe in eternal perdition. Love my neighbor all I may. If I believe hell is real, I cannot love him as myself. My conviction that there is a hell to which one of us might go while the other enters into the kingdom of God means that I must be willing to abandon him, indeed abandon everyone, to a fate of total misery while yet continuing to assume that, having done so, I shall be able to enjoy perfect eternal bliss." Unquote. Or once you have allowed in your mind for someone to be set on fire forever as something they deserve, the thought of them suffering temporarily from COVID-19 in a hospital bed doesn't seem quite to be that big of a deal anymore. The theology of eternal conscious torment deadens the humanity of both the person being seen and the seer. As a result, you end up with John MacArthur and the Grace Church elders receiving a standing ovation for exercising their authority in the face of human suffering. As John MacArthur stood before his congregation to preach, 
He rejoiced in their decision to return to what we love the most, the fellowship of the saints and the worship of our Lord. Noticeably absent was any mention of loving their neighbors as self, which is what Jesus said he loved the most. MacArthur continued, There have been many people who don't understand why we would do this. We understand that. We understand that the world does not understand the importance of the church. The world doesn't understand that it is not just essential. It's it's the only hope of eternal life for doomed sinners. People have been very concerned to make sure people's physical lives are protected and in the process shut down places where there's hope for their spiritual lives to be transformed, where they can live eternally in the presence of God, unquote. And then he moved into describing unbelievers in nothing but negative terms. In other words, John MacArthur is doing exactly what David Bentley Hart says infernalists will do. He's dismissing the suffering of his community based on his theology of eternal conscious torment. Some have tried to defend MacArthur by saying his decision is a Romans 14 matter of conscience. But Romans 14 is about eating good meat offered to idols. It is not about pastors offering poisoned meat to their communities. One of MacArthur's favorite phrases that appears throughout the letter and his sermon is, The Bible is very clear. Since the Bible is so clear... Hear this passage from Isaiah 1, where the prophet Isaiah describes what God thinks about people who gather for work, for fellowship and worship, while ignoring the suffering of the oppressed in their communities. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation, I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So as I said, this article was originally written in 2020. It was actually written on July 28th for Baptist News Global. And so this was towards the beginning of the pandemic and uh, we, we were a few months in and a lot of churches had had you know three months off of services or some of them had started back up in May with only one month off churches were kind of in this weird place of wondering how long is this going to last what you know what should we do to be able to provide our people with an opportunity for worship but also to make sure that we're not actually spreading physical death and sickness. And so it was a real tricky time for for churches to figure out what they're going to do. And and John MacArthur's church decided to uh, not only meet, but to have no precautions, to not wear masks, to not socially distance, to pack everyone in an enclosed space, and then to brag about it and post pictures about how uncareful they were being. So I needed to write about the story. And one of the, ironically, one of the interesting things 
about it was that people, a lot of people had a problem with the title, the, the John MacArthur, how John MacArthur loves the Bible, but not his neighbor. And people were saying, how, how could you say that, that John MacArthur doesn't love his neighbor? And I think I, I think I made my case in the article. I'm not going to get into that again uh, here in this part, but it's kind of funny because on one hand, I actually didn't write the title. And so people quote me as saying the title, but the title is actually written by an editor for one. So that's the one part of the article that I actually didn't write. And and for another, I actually would say that I also disagree with the title because the title says how John MacArthur loves the Bible, but not his neighbor. And what I would actually say is that John MacArthur doesn't even love the Bible. And uh, it, how, how in the world could I say that? Well, if John MacArthur really loved the Bible, he would respect it enough to let it be what it is. He would respect the Bible enough to allow it to speak in its own ancient context. He wouldn't be claiming that everything is crystal clear all the time. He, he wouldn't wield it as a weapon against his neighbors. And so, no, I, I, I actually agree that the title has, is problematic to this article. I would just say that he doesn't even love the Bible either. So, uh, so count that as, as a little bit of a, a shift for, for me on, on that side of things. Um, also, something that became very clear to me through this article was that your language reveals the lens that you see the world through. And, and you notice how I mentioned that these, these men have the lens of power. The, the amount of, of ways that they, they talked about authority and power and, and all of that was just, it was very revealing. You can, they, they, wouldn't, go, they wouldn't come out and say, we have a lens of power. But when you actually examine their words and you, you look at the actual words that they're using, it's all over the place. I said that they, they use the word authority 31 times, right 13 times, and some form of head, subject, command, rule at least another 70 times. I mean, at some point, it was a, it was a short statement, and they got all of that packed in there. Like, at some point, you got to realize the words that people use your language, it reveals the lens that you see the world through. And they see the world primarily through a lens of power. And then also something that else that stood out to me was how they have a lack of lament. I mean, you look at the numbers that I mentioned in the article, those were those were towards the beginning. We now have we we now have six point one three million COVID deaths worldwide. There there have been nearly one million deaths in the United States and 32,000 in Los Angeles alone. Like, we can have some differences on the politics of this. We can have some differences on how to best handle the situation or whether what role we think the government should have in dealing with private businesses or churches I can understand having some differences on those, but to to see the number of deaths and to have no word of lament, 
it's it's just it's staggering and and to see that their response in in the light of all of that was just a grasping of power was was just very difficult to process and so part of where i want to go in this episode is to look at how we respond to this like how do you respond when your lens opens your awareness of abuse. Because once you start to recognize these words that they're using, the language of power, the lack of lament, all of a sudden you, as someone who reads an article about John MacArthur or who listens to John MacArthur, a John MacArthur sermon or sees a YouTube video, all of a sudden you now have a lens where you are aware of abuse that is happening. When you can see how he's using a theology of hell to create this ultimate backdrop that we have to avoid in order it which motivates then lesser somewhat, you know, supposedly lesser abuses now of dismissing people's physical health because of their eternal suffering in order to give them a chance to hear your theology. Like he's directly using the theology of eternal conscious torment in order to dismiss people's physical health. And so once you start to see that and you have a lens of awareness, how do you respond to this? And, and this, is, this is actually a reason why it, it took me a little bit to release this episode. Because quite frankly, John MacArthur, the problem with dealing with him is that he has so many issues related to it. To, to his ministries. Like, it seems like there's just been a scandalous issue after scandalous issue going on with Grace to You or Master's Seminary or John MacArthur and the people around him on what seems like a, a weekly basis. Like, even in my last episode, I talked at length about how First Peter 3 could be used to pressure women to stay in abusive marriages. And then, what do you know, just this last week, news breaks of a teacher at John MacArthur's ministry using that exact passage in that exact same way. And quite frankly, it's a bit overwhelming. And there's a part of me in this episode that wanted to just read the article that I wrote and then share all of these other stories that have come to light since then to show how Master's Seminary and Grace to You John MacArthur's ministries have, have continued to play out his silly little power games to prove my point even more. I mean, we, we could we could talk for hours about the the different things that they've been caught up with. But there's another part of me that's just weary of it all. And so I think I think the story I want to discuss here has less to do with how John MacArthur wields power and more to do with how we process the endless waves of nonsense and abuse. So that's what I've been sitting on for this episode. So I have a few thoughts, because I do think it's important to name the abuses that John MacArthur and others like him are committing. I do think it's important to be aware of that and to call that out, but also we also need to consider ourselves and our own spiritual health and how this is affecting us too. So the first thing I want to say is recognize 
how John MacArthur's relationship with his neighbors is affecting your relationship with your neighbors. And because John MacArthur is mistreating his neighbors, he's been mistreating his neighbors. Whether you agree with masks and social distancing or whatever you think about COVID, this is much bigger than COVID. There, there's been story after story come out about John MacArthur, and in every case, his relationship with his neighbors is a problem. And, and so when you read an article about MacArthur or you hear something about MacArthur, you see a tweet about MacArthur, you're naturally going to be outraged. You're naturally going to have issues with that. And part of the problem that I face is that, you know, I'll, po- I'll happen to point that out on social media. Hey, look, look at this. Um, here, here we have it again. I'm trying to help people see, like, connect the dots. Look at this. Look how he's using theology to promote slavery. Look how he's using theology to promote staying in abusive marriages. Look at how he's using theology to promote dismissing people's physical health. Like, look at the, notice these patterns. But the problem is that many of my friends don't recognize it as a scandal, they 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 think it's like persecution or you know evangelical persecution or something or they 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 don't have a problem with the theology of eternal conscious torment they think it's biblical so what's there to be concerned about there's no connection here between this and abuse despite the fact that MacArthur is explicitly connecting them and and so suddenly John MacArthur's relationship with his neighbors is now affecting my relationship with my neighbors and my friends and the people that I interact with, especially on social media. And, and I think that's important to just recognize that reality. And then also, once we've recognized that, to begin to name the emotions that you feel about that. And for me one big emotion that I have is bewilderment. Like, how? How is this happening? How do you guys not see this? In, in, in the book of Lamentations, in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew word for Lamentations, it means how. After the destruction of Jerusalem, when they were taken into exile, their, their response is, how? We might, we might compare the destruction of Jerusalem to our modern deconstruction of a certain spiritual home or theological home that we're in. You know, for, for, for Israel, they had three big concerns. They, they had the desire for land, a temple, and a king. And they believed that all of these, you know, the land, the temple, and the king were all promises to Abraham that were centered in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, like, that's what their that's what their political world was, that's what their religious world was. All of that was centered there in Jerusalem. Suddenly, they're in exile in Babylon, and they're just like, how? What happened? And I think, you know, for me, I used to really be huge into John MacArthur. I was really big into John Piper. I was big into the Gospel Coalition. For for those of us who were for who were in that world, like 
you know, we had a we had a mansion lined up. We had streets of gold. We had pleasures forevermore. These were our people, and now we're in exile from them. And I think I find myself often just wanting to say, "How? Like, how did this happen? I didn't set out for this to happen." But there's there's a bit of a bewilderment. There's a, a grief, yes, but there's a there's a bewilderment to it. And I know my story and I know how it how it unfolded, but sometimes it's important to just to just feel that how in your soul. Another feeling is is betrayal. Like you you sold your neighbor for 30 pieces of tithe money. There, there's been a story of megachurch pastor after megachurch pastor that have, have sold their neighbors for a private jet or for a ridiculous salary or whatever it might be. Even, even, in, the, even in non-megachurches, there have been pastors in smaller churches that have sold their neighbors for for virtually nothing for for power for prestige in a little community there's there's a feeling of betrayal that we have there's there's grief over what's been lost there's anger over what's been done and all of these emotions are legitimate responses to the injustice to the injustices of evangelical power dynamics and so i think we need to recognize how john macarthur's relationship with his neighbors are affecting our relationship with ours i think we need to name the emotions that we feel about that and then we need to move through and channel our emotions. In in Exodus, there's the story of the Israelites who, before exile, were enslaved in Egypt. And in Exodus uh, 12, where, where God is talking to Moses about them being liberated, he says in verse 16, on the first day hold a sacred assembly and, on a, and another one on the seventh day. That word assembly it means witnesses of the liberation or a witnessing community of how the liberation would unfold. He's saying to them, you are to be witnesses of your own liberation. And this is something that's sacred. It's something that's, that's holy. There's something, there's something important about this. And I think that for those of us who have deconstructed and for those of us who are interacting on social media uh, about this with people, I think it's important for us to to see it in terms of a sacred, a witnessing community, a, a sacred witnessing of our liberation. It's not just that we're irate and we're just going after evangelicalism because we're just ticked. It's not just because. It's not just that we're traumatized by people that have hurt us, and so we're just lashing out. No, we are a witnessing community, witnesses of our own liberation, 
and we are giving voice to that. And that's a sacred calling. That's a sacred thing. It's a sacred duty. And, and then in, uh, in verse 17, it says, Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought, you, that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. And so I think many of us, we identify with Moses saying, let my people go. And I think a lot of the, the things that we post online are, are us saying, let my people go. Let women be free. Let LGBTQ people be free of our stereotypes and our belittling and the, the dehumanizing that we put them through. Let, let racial minorities be free of the systemic structures that we have built in order to promote white supremacy. Like there is a there is a, a very important aspect to this and a and an urgent uh, there's an urgent from the soul calling to tell people to tell the power dynamics, the power structures, let my people go. And we need to have that. But I also love how in this, these verses in, in, in Exodus 12, there's, there's a sacred assembly on the first and the seventh day. There's, there's kind of a rhythm to it. And I wonder, I wonder if some of us who, when you sense your soul being so overcome with rage and so overcome with anger to where it, perhaps it's affecting your own mental health and your own spiritual health. I wonder if there may be something to creating some kind of rhythm where on the first and seventh day we say something. Um, maybe it doesn't need to be four or five posts a day. Maybe it does, but maybe there are some. Maybe there could be some sort of rhythm to the way we call for liberation. I think it's also important to identify yourself as a witness of liberation. That, that this is something that that is a sacred calling. It's something that that you are seeing. You you have seen the liberation of yourself. You have seen the liberation of your friends, and you can identify yourself as a witness to that. And then, and then also, I love in verse seventeen where it talks about the the celebration and 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 I think it's important for us to celebrate liberation in a way that moves you toward hospitality. And 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 I'm not saying that, you know, we need to look at Exodus and and follow these commands of the law in order to have these particular feasts of unleavened bread and all that kind of stuff. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that there is a movement towards hospitality that I think can be something that would be very beneficial for us. We have these rhythms of giving witness to the liberation that we're seeing. We have these rhythms of identifying ourselves as witnesses of liberation and and calling out for more liberation, and we see that as sacred, and then we do so in a way that moves us toward hospitality, a hospitality that welcomes yourself, but that also welcome, welcomes others. 
that that sees yourself as a host and sees others as a guest who can who can come and and participate with you there are there are there are gatherings of of people within uh you know in in the city that I'm in where you know we'll get together at a you know a coffee shop or a a, a bar or someone's backyard and and we'll just hang out and i think that that's a great way of celebrating liberation in a way that fosters hospitality. And I would encourage wherever you're at to try to find some groups of, of, of people. I've even met with people that I've never, never even talked to before or, or just had been friends with on Facebook. And, and we'll, we've been able to get together and there's this, there's this common soul that happens because this liberation that we've both experienced or the group of us have experienced, and that we can be present with each other in a way that that is is rare. And you know, we've been through something together, even though we weren't together. And 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 here we are enjoying a nice meal or a drink or you know a, a fire in someone's backyard and or a walk you know, on a trail in the forest. And, and there's so many ways that we can, we can begin to move into hospitality with one another and for one another in, in these feelings and, and, and channeling our, our emotions toward that. So speaking of hospitality, one of the areas where evangelicals have become especially strong in hospitality is through summer camps. And now is the time when a lot of summer camps are looking for campers. They're looking for people to sign up for camp. And many of us who have deconstructed to some degrees may have a, may have a strong mix of emotions about our summer camp memories. It was our first time away from home for many of us. We developed friendships and, and a lot of fun memories. But there was also a lot of trauma for those of us who went to evangelical camps that you know threatened eternal conscious torment, or that promoted a lot of shame and, and rules on us, uh, especially with purity culture. And so now that some of us are getting older and our kids, we may have kids that are getting into the summer camp ages, like how do we process whether or not we should send them to summer camp? How do we process, um, if we do, how, how, does that, how does that go for us? You know, how, do, how are we going to help our kids think through all that? And so that is what we're going to be exploring on our next episode of The Opening. I don't think that the church has integrity to speak any good news at all until the church actually understands the reality that it is living and has crafted bad news in public policy. It has established theological foundations for oppression that have lived throughout the times and only changed shape over the generations, but has not been repented of. Bad theology always produces diminished psychology. Diminished psychology produces dysfunctional sociology. Dysfunctional sociology always produces oppressive anthropology, and then they always produce oppressive economics and ideologies. So it all flows from bad theology. Your notion of God is wrong or flawed. 
your notion of self and others and power is wrong. Thank you for listening to the opening podcast with Rick Pitcock. The opening is a podcast that deconstructs the power dynamics of religious hierarchies and opens us up to healthy relationship. For more information about today's episode, please check out rickpitcock.com and follow on social media at Rick Pitcock.